Welcome to Creative Places and Faces, the podcast that explores how places can affect our creativity and lives. Irish author Jackie DeBurka interviews artists, authors, and all sorts of creatives from around the world. Travel virtually and explore the world creatively. I read the third novel written by today's guest late last year and I couldn't put it down. Guilty, which is set in County Clare, is a riveting page turner about the dark secret that causes a doctor's perfect life to unravel. One review by the author Patricia Gibney stated, A full tapestry of secrets and lies, a perfect mix for a thrilling read. I loved Guilty. And so did I. And after reading it, I wasn't surprised to notice that our guest describes herself as a plotaholic. A very warm welcome to you, Siobhan McDonald. Thank you so much for joining us today. It's lovely to be with you, Jackie. Thank you for having me. Thanks, Siobhan. So listen, the temptation to roll out this quote frequently overcomes me, Siobhan. Wherever you go becomes a part of you somehow by Anita Desai. What do you feel about this quote? I, yeah, I mean, there, there are, I agree with that. And I guess we kind of have an Irish version of that, which might sometimes be a bit uh, used disparagingly. Um, You can take the man or the woman out of the bog, but you can't take the bog out of the man or the woman. And I think really what that means in a a broader sense is roughly what you're saying there, you know, where you've been becomes part of you. Mm -hmm. And um, it reminds me very much of the themes that I tried to cover in the very first novel, that I wrote, which is still in a drawer and I may revisit at some time. And in the opening scene in this particular novel, I have a teacher in a classroom saying to the children, you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. And I think I was probably at the time I was influenced by um, uh, Maya Angelou. And that was uh, one uh, a phrase that she used to say, you can't know where you're going unless you know where you've been. So I think you, you bring your, your past with you, but you also leave a little bit of yourself behind wherever you've been as well. So yes, I, I, I do agree with that. Brilliant answer. I love that answer, Siobhan. So what places have become a part of you in your own life to date? Well, I have spent the majority of my time in Ireland. I was born in Cork. I lived there for eight years and then we moved to Limerick. I went to college in Galway to NUIG and I spent a lot of summer holidays around the the West Coast and the Southwest Coast. And then I left Ireland and I spent the bones of 10 years on and off in Scotland. And I spent a bit of time in the South of France as well. I spent a, a year working in the South of France. So they're the places that I've spent you know, long tranches of time mm-hmm. apart from holidays here and there. Okay. Okay. So you were the first eight years of your life in Cork and then you moved to Limerick. So let's yes. talk about those, those both, the, both of those environments, Siobhan. How did either or both of them influence your formative years? Well, I guess, you know, where, where you grew up in your, your early years, I mean, everybody remembers their, their first day at school and their first friends and the first film that they went to see and the first 
book that they read. And I remember all of those from that Cork setting. I grew up in uh, Bishopstown and I remember my mother bringing me to school um, and my memory of it. And she isn't around at the moment from, you know, she, she's passed on. But my memory of it is of her giving me a piggyback through a field full of blackberry bushes along to a Skull and Spritnave, which was the name of the school in uh, Bishopstown. And I remember that that first day at school thinking, yes, well, this is all very well and it's lovely, uh, but I don't think I'll come back again. It's a little bit boring. And <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, you get to find out that actually, yes, you do have to come back again. But um, I lived, uh, I grew up on a, well, two uh, housing estates. One of them was uh, an old established estate. And the second one was a new development. And I remember all the builders rubble being around and these, like, they were almost like teepees with, um, the, I suppose it was uh, builder's blocks and beams of wood. And just remember all the, the games that we played, you know, we would play cowboys and Indians and cops and robbers and all those kind of games that I suppose there are variations in that that kids play now. And it was a, a lot of outdoor play because uh, the TV didn't start until six o'clock when mm-hmm. I was uh, very small. So you were out all the time. And uh, reading would have been a, a big part of my life. I remember every Saturday uh, going into, t- my mother would bring me into town and uh, I would buy, I would get an Enid Blyton, which was what I had started off with uh, every Saturday. And then I remember um, the first film that I went to see, I think it was Bedknobs and Broomsticks um, in the in the cinema in Cork and Patrick Street. And we went to the Wimpy next door afterwards. So um they were my my early memories uh from cork and i i remember the emphasis at the time in school was and, and things have moved away from, from from this philosophy i guess they might come back at a, a certain stage but it was really the three r's the reading writing and arithmetic um and i remember our little spelling book we would have a, an essential spelling list it was a red book and you'd have 20 spellings to learn off every week and i remember writing my first essays in school and um, actually, the teacher was horrified when she heard that I was going leaving Cork because the notion that anybody would leave Cork was just anathema to her. She couldn't understand why anybody would leave, you know, the great Republic of Cork. And I, I was looking back on it. I mean, the, the the city does very much have a sense of independence. And I think anything far away from from the capital and outside the pale, um, they Cork people do very much have an independent spirit. And I think uh, you can kind of see that at the moment when they're commemorating the the War of Independence and the Civil War. And there's all these uh, programs on TV at the moment um, about various military activities that happened down there. I think in a way they happened around Cork more than in other places because they were so far outside the pale. And and, and that kind of feeds itself into the psyche of a, of a city as well. I think they're, they're very proud, very independent people. And I think um, I left Cork with very much with a sense, I was only eight, mm. but I did leave with a sense of being a little Cork woman at the time. <laughs> and I do remember arriving in Limerick and people looking at me going, oh, look at her with that mad Cork accent. <laughs> And again, Limerick has um, Limerick has been extremely good to me, and um, 
uh, it's, it's a different feel of a place. Uh, it's smaller, mm-hmm. um, beautiful, some beautiful Georgian architecture, which, you know, uh, hopefully we are, we are going to retain and uh, restore. Um, but uh, again, it, it, it felt more like even then to me, a, a big town rather than a city. And I went to an all-Irish school. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was called On Moskul, which um, was in a, oh, I think the, the building at the time I went was possibly even, you know, 150, 180 years old. And we had this classroom with huge, big vaulted ceilings and a big kind of Gothic window that you could see the the, the trees outside. And there was no central heating. And I it, it might sound like the dark ages, but we were, we actually had turns in the classroom to feed this. There was some kind of a, um, a turf burning uh, oven in the wow. classroom. Okay. And, yeah. I mean, it sounds like the dark ages, but it was a very, very, very old building. And uh, again, it was mixed classes. You'd have two classes in there together. And the, the teachers that we had in there were, were fairly inspirational. I have to say, again, um, it was a small school. And I think you can do a lot when, when classes are small Definitely. rather than, mm. yeah. Yeah. If you move from, you know, for a 40 person class to maybe 20 person, you can, you can you can do an awful lot more work. So um, that was my my early years um, in Limerick. They're my early memories. Okay, I mean I find it very interesting. Uh, separate to the environments and the and the story yes. of of the the classroom there in Limerick, that you were educated um, in Gaelic in Irish for for people who are not yes. Irish. Do you feel, Siobhan, that learning uh, a second language, which of course is our national language originally. Do you feel yes. that affected you creatively as a person at all? Oh, yes, definitely. Um, I think it uh, opens up uh, a part of your brain that um, you're not fearful then of, of learning other languages. My my father was a native Irish speaker. Now, he wasn't from Connemara or anything. He, he was from uh, West Waterford, but his own father had uh, learned Irish at the age of 30 in um Ring College, and he brought his children up speaking um, Irish. And then my father passed uh, that down, his love of Irish, down to me. Even though, I mean, we, we came from a kind of a an odd household in that um, <laughs> my dad had this uh, great love of Irish, but my mother was English and didn't have a word of Irish. So <laughs> we kind of had the two traditions That's in our house. Interesting. Very interesting. Yeah. Okay. It was a bit like... Um, I remember reading Hugo Hamilton's book, The Speckled People, and he describes this kind of having one German parent and one Irish parent and the two kind of traditions mixing. It it was uh, very much like that uh, in our house because my mother was very proud of her English heritage and my father was very proud of his uh, Gaelic-speaking Irish heritage. And, um, you know, you're not fearful then of uh, learning another language, as I say, and you, you, the way it was taught, I think, in certain schools probably didn't inspire a love of the language. But the way I was taught and having it at home didn't make it something to be feared. And then you had access to uh, so many Irish stories that meant more to you when you could understand them. I remember reading, oh, was it Thoriach Dermadagus Grania in Leaving Certain, Peg Sayers and all those stories, which everybody else seems to hate the story of Peg Sayers, whether... <laughs> 
whereas I actually enjoyed reading those stories. I don't know whether that's a reflection on me or not, but um, I think having a facility with Irish at that time, now it's very, very rusty, but, you know, it, it made these things more accessible to me, I think. I think I, think I, would, I would agree. I did one year in uh, Ring, so... I would have not the same background ex- to, to, to the extent that you do, Siobhan, but I would agree that it's a very interesting mix uh, of languages and culture that you were growing up with. And yeah. I would imagine, did it affect your creativity as a child? What kind of memories do you have of being a creative child? Well, I suppose the, the, because I enjoyed um, Irish, I enjoyed writing in Irish and I used to write in my, let's say, as a child, I suppose it was 12, 13, 14, um, I used to write uh, poetry and that was would be entered into competitions. I, there was a competition at the time um, and I think it's maybe come to an end now. I don't think they, they operate anymore, but it was a slogan. Mm-hmm. And I used to write poetry for that. And also I used to write uh, dramatic duologues where I'd write a script to be acted on stage between two people mm-hmm. and uh, that uh, they would be entered into competitions as well. And we used to, I remember going up to Dunleary um, and our Irish teacher bringing us up and we, we would um, act out these little scenes on stage. So, you know, if, if nothing else, it was a great day out, the big smoke <laughs> and you, <laughs> you know, uh, so, so that was fun. And then um, later I, I wrote, um, uh, an essay for uh, the old intercert, or as it used to be called in my day. Um, I remember, I don't remember the essay I actually wrote, but I, I did get an, a, a recognition for it uh, from the exam board for creativity. So I guess, you know, it struck a chord with, with some people. So I, my my first foray, forays into creative writing were probably in Irish rather than rather than in English. That's so interesting. And, and tell me yeah. something, Siobhan, uh, were there any family members or teachers that you have in your memory that were, you know, encouraging to you in this particular way? Oh, certainly. I mean, I came from um, a very encouraging household. Uh, my Both my mum and dad always told, there are six of us in family, mm-hmm. and they always told us we could do and be anything we wanted to be. Um my mother would have, you know, if we had wanted to be astronauts, she would have said, you know, go and do that. You're able to. She, she inspired confidence in us. She was a, she was a, a, a hugely positive person, as as was my father. So um, I, my mother was always writing uh, poems, little kind of Pam Air kind of ditties, as she would call them, and she would recite them and enter them into competitions and uh, try and get on the radio with them because she came from a a speech and drama background and she loved theatre and she loved any kind of drama. So uh, any kind of writing that I would do, she she would uh, encourage me along that route, uh, as would my father. And then in school, I did have, um, I had teachers in primary and in secondary school. One, one particular teacher in the model school, her name was uh, Breed Kalu, mm-hmm. which is such an unusual name. And she, um, oh, she used, she could speak French, she could speak Russian, she could, um, she was really interested in theatre and she inspired all of us in our writing in school. And then in secondary school, I had an English teacher and an Irish teacher who were, 
who were quite inspirational. Um, our English teacher kind of taught us the, the rudiments of, I, I suppose she did a lot of debating with us as well. And she taught us the uh, the art of arguing from the um, general to the particular. Mm-hmm. And she, just a lot of, she did a lot of basics with us. Um, and I guess the, the curriculum in, in the schools at the time, I mean, they had wonderful materials to work with because we had... Um, these books called Exploring English 1, 2, and 3. And they would cover all the, um, you know, the, the a lot of the poets, mm-hmm. you know, the metaphysical poets, the romantic poets, the Irish poets. So, we, we you know, we got a very good grounding in the basics of, of English literature uh, in school. And um, so, so it was a good curriculum. And uh, as I say, yeah, th- these teachers were inspirational in terms of, inspiring our creativity for essay writing and poetry writing and that kind of thing. Okay. I I actually do remember those books. I think we're, yes. we're a similar age group, I think. Now, yes. Tell me something on a slightly different uh, note. What about family holidays? Did you head off to any places uh, during your formative years as a family that sort of have stayed with you? Oh, yes. Um, we, for many years as a, a my earliest memories of going on holiday were down to Skull in West Cork. And we took a break from that for a while. We used to go to a house in Uchterard, uh, out I suppose it was, it's the gateway to Connemara, really. And then we came back to West Cork and spent many, many years down in uh, Barley Cove. We used to go to, we'd all pack into this, tiny wooden chalet at the side of a hill and overlooking a lagoon and the sea. And that's where we went for, uh, oh, I don't know, more than 10 years, I would say, at Easter time and maybe for six or seven weeks in the summer. So uh, I look back with huge fondness at my time uh, down in West Cork. Mm, I can imagine. So when we were in contact uh, before today's interview, you used a wonderful phrase in connection with West Cork. You you said, Siobhan, for the colour therapy that it, it affords, are colours especially important to you? I think that they are. I don't know. I mean, it is a science. Colour therapy is, is a kind of a science. And I do. I love the colour blue and I love all the variations of blue you can get from, from the sea. And the sea down around... West Cork, that part of the country can be, you know, vary from turquoise to uh, an aqua to a a navy blue. And there's something in that that makes, that lifts your spirits. And I don't know, I I mean, I remember one time hearing Marion Finucane, who, uh, may she rest in peace, who was an RTE radio um, broadcaster. And she once said, you know, I don't need to go on holiday, all I need to do is actually look at a brochure and look at the colour of the sea. And I too, now that we can't go on holiday at the moment with the virus, um, even looking at old uh, photographs of holidays or any brochures you may have lying around, just to see that colour blue, it, it does it does lift the spirits. Yes, it definitely does. And yes. um, going to something that you wrote in the Irish Times, uh, again, during you know, the pandemic in 2020, in September of 2020, you said, as an island nation, many of us have a close affinity with water. I certainly do. 
My novels all have waterside settings, Twisted River, The Blue Pool, and now my latest thriller, Guilty, set on a lakeside in County Clare. I have recently returned from a week by the sea in a tiny cottage on a remote part of the Mizzen Peninsula in West Cork. Now, I've asked other guests, Siobhan, about their connection with water. It's a theme that really fascinates me. Tell, tell me a bit about your, your very obvious connection with water, Siobhan. Well, I, I, I wonder if it comes from, there's always a sense of mystery around water. And in college, I did uh, electronic, well, engineering. And I remember part of the engineering course, we had to study hydraulics and we had to study, you know, the movement of water. Mm -hmm. And I remember one particular lecture where we were discussing how water, particularly on a riverbank, moves along the riverbank. And the molecules, when they're in connection with the surface, like a riverbank, they move much more slowly because they kind of stick and they move very slowly towards uh, the bank. But the further away from a surface you come or the deeper from a surface you go, the water moves very, very differently there. And I think there's that, you know, that there's this, this sense of mystery. You're only seeing something move in one particular direction when you're looking at the surface, but there's all kinds of things going on underneath. And also when you're by water, especially by the sea, there's negative ions come off the uh, the, the sea, sea water anywhere near sea and anywhere near moving water, you get negative ions, which, which, which make you feel good. And I guess it kind of comes back to the whole color therapy thing. And, you know, water, you can feel inspired by water. It's, it's very relaxing to be by the water and just look out at the waves and not really think about anything else. I guess it's a bit like, you know, watching waves is a bit similar to maybe stroking a cat or stroking a dog. You're, you're not really thinking about anything. Yes. You're, you're, you're letting your mind wander mm -hmm. and that can be very inspirational and, and it can be a creative place to be. Mm, interesting answer. I have six cats so <laughs> oh, right. and, and a number of dogs as well. So I think perhaps in a way, both water and maybe stroking uh, a pet maybe triggers us into subconscious rather than conscious. What would you think about that? I think so. And also when you're relaxed, you, you tap into memory a lot, I think. And um, if you're ever trying to think maybe of a, uh, a loved one that ha has passed on being by water it, it, again is the kind of place that you I guess because we are an island nation and so many of our, our holidays have been by water you, all those memories are triggered there by being uh, close by hmm. yes that's a beautiful thought and just moving on to your college days that you mentioned briefly uh in your answer there previously, where did you actually study? And was this a place that was important to you and your creativity, Siobhan? I uh, studied in uh, Galway, in NUIG. And I, oh, it was, I had, a, let's say, a left brain experience, <laughs> more or less against my better judgment. I went and I did engineering in Galway because it was in 
I did engineering because it was the 80s. And there, I got a scholarship to go to college and I was advised to to do this because at least at the end of it, I might have a, a job opportunity in Ireland. Mm-hmm. And really, when I when I think back, None of us at 18 really wanted to stay in Ireland. We all just couldn't wait to leave. Our ambition when we finished college was to was to leave and to see the, the wider world, not solely because of economic reasons, but just the opportunity to travel. And I would have rathered, and I did mention doing history and English or uh, languages and um I guess at home, I was advised that, you know, there people with arts degrees are finding it so difficult to get jobs and uh, you really would be better off, do, you know, doing uh, electronics now. So that is is what I did. I wouldn't have considered it um, that inspirational. I mean, I enjoy uh, I enjoyed physics. I enjoyed the theory of everything, <laughs> but the actual process of being in a lab and you know with breadboards and soldering irons and all that kind of thing that really uh, yeah that did, that didn't float my boat at all. <laughs> but <laughs> but if Galway was you know one of the things that. Um, I would definitely say in its favour, certainly at that time uh, in the 80s, and I'm not, I would imagine it's still the same. Because at that time it was a small university, you were in contact with people who were doing arts, who were doing uh, science, who were doing medicine. And there was a huge mix. You weren't just with the people in your own faculty. I wasn't just with um my, you know, with my class, any time that you would go into the uh, canteen and I would have to say I did spend rather a lot of time in the canteen. <laughs> um, you know, y- y- there was a great mix of people and a great mix of people from mainly along the, the Western seaboard, to, to be honest. It was from Donegal uh, right down to uh, down to Kerry. Mm-hmm. Um, that, that, you know, that's where they uh, seem to come from. And it was creative in that uh, regard and that you you did get to mi- mix with uh, all those people. And I used to I used to be so envious of them going off to their English lectures and going off to their Irish lectures. <laughs> I was going down to Nuns Island to that was where the labs were um, or into a, a technical drawing lab or whatever. But look, um, it did in the heel of the hunt give me um, an in into back into writing because uh, I hadn't got my engineering degree I knew I didn't want to work solely in engineering and I managed to find a career that would let me write uh, and that career was uh, technical writing so I kind of managed to marry up my love of writing with my my left brain technology brain so Mm. it kind of worked out in the end. So yes so that's interesting that leads us very naturally on to the next question which is what type of work did you do, which you've sort of explained, but where did that take you, Siobhan? It took you to a few different places. It did. Um, when I, again, when I, when I left college, um, I went for a few interviews. I had, um, uh, I got a job offer with a, a defence company, which was in Shannon at the time. And um, I really didn't fancy, even back then, working for the defence industry. And I, um, there, they, 
there was an ad in the Irish Times looking for technical writers in, in Scotland. And I thought, oh, you know, that sounds interesting. I, I, I'll see if I can uh, wangle an interview for that. And I remember going to juries in Dublin and there was maybe about 20 people being interviewed over the course of a couple of days for this job um, with a company in Dundee. And I was I was lucky and I got the job and uh, I worked there. They trained. There were no there are degrees in technical writing now and diplomas that you can do, especially here in uh, the University of Limerick. But at that time you were trained up on the job and I went to work for NCR in Dundee and they trained me on the job. And I I was there for a couple of years. They they did all the software and hardware and manufacturing for the for ATMs, mm-hmm. uh, the banking machines, and I worked there for oh, I'd say maybe a year and a half, and then I, you know, I don't know if you've ever been to Dundee, but it's extremely cold. No, <laughs> it's extremely cold. <laughs> uh, I, I remember my first weekend there thinking on, at five o'clock on a Saturday evening, I was in town and I was thinking, where is everybody? Uh, and it was, I think it must have been October or November. And everybody was indoors, whereas at home in Ireland, everybody was just coming out uh, on a Saturday evening at five o'clock, getting ready for an evening out. But it was just so cold. I remember the cold. And I, after a year and a half, I thought, uh, oh, I, I need to go somewhere warmer. And I got a job with um, an airline company that did all the telecoms for the airlines. And that was in the south of France um, in a place called Sofia Antipolis. It was what they called a technopole, which was kind of this um, technology park uh, not far from Antibes and Joan Lepin and Nice and all those places. Mm. So I I went uh, to work there for a stretch. That was quite a contrast, Siobhan. <laughs> yes, it was a big, big contrast. And what about your French? Had you done French in school or not? I had. I had done uh, French in school. Um, I remember doing all the, the Guy de Maupassant stories. Um, and I had done an exchange uh, with a family in Paris when I was about 16 and but that's that's the only French I had Mm -hmm. but you know these exchanges they were worth their weight in gold because family that I went to didn't have any English and you know you had to sink or swim so um, I did have you know the basics uh, of of French at that time Um, and you know that that got me through I mean I wasn't actually uh, the working language w- was English in uh, the company that I was working for. But, you know, in, in getting by and day-to-day living and finding a flat and uh, doing your shopping and conversing with people, um, yeah, I had to uh, brush up on the uh, the school French. And, you know, uh, there's nothing like uh, being thrown in at the deep end. And um, at that time, you know, I, I managed uh, to get by. I think it was reasonable enough. And we've had some holidays in France since. So, um, yeah, it was a good experience. I think language is uh, most well triggered by necessity, essentially, isn't it? It is. Yeah, it is. Definitely. So tell me something with the different environments that you worked in. Have any of those stayed with you, you know, when you're writing or as just as any sort of source of creativity? Um, well, they have. I mean, I ju- just uh, thinking back there to 
the Guy de Maupassant stories that we we did when we were um, in school, and they they were they were wonderful stories. You know, you um, I just remember some of them: Lum de Mars, Cusay, uh, Le Bon Dicors, uh, all about vendettas and that kind of thing. But there was one story uh, about a character that all he could ever see. <laughs> was danger. And I, I think this character ended up, uh, yeah, this was a story of agoraphobia, really, and why this character didn't set a foot out the door. But anything that he imagined himself doing, he imagined it going terribly wrong and disaster befalling him at every turn. <laughs> and any of the, the let's say, the, the journeys uh, that I've been on, uh, you know, I did quite a bit of traveling for work, and I had a few kind of hair-raising escapades and I managed then to I suppose they stuck in in my psyche and uh, they became a source of creativity uh, and inspiration for uh, some of my books I guess you know especially in um, well Twisted River is a story of um, a house swap that goes terribly wrong and it's set one half of it's set in uh, New York and it touches on Long Island and the other half is set in, in Limerick around the Curragara Falls. And I remember when I was I was on a course in uh, Long Island when I was working with CETA and uh, we'd been advised not to, to only uh, get company approved transport. But I think I was late back to the motel after the course one evening and I was had to get back to JFK to fly back to France. Mm-hmm. And I missed the uh, company transport. So I ended up just ringing a phone number that was at the hotel desk. Now, despite being told not to do this. And this this character pitched up. um, And I remember looking at the the, the registration thinking, oh, really? I don't know about that. The registration was N-A-M-V-E-T, which spells Nam Vet, which is like a Vietnam veteran. And I just thought, well, I'm in a rush. I don't have uh, time to, you know, fuss about. I got into the car, and oh my goodness, this this poor chap. He he really wasn't well at all. He had um, a pile of documentation on the passenger seat, and um, the bonnet bonnet of his car kept flapping up and down. It really uh, wasn't roadworthy at all. And he said, when he found out that he said, "Oh, what you do for a living?" And I said, "Well, I'm a, a technical writer." And uh, he said, "Oh, you're a writer." He said see all these documents here this is all about my friends that are stuck behind uh, that were stuck behind enemy lines after the Vietnam War they're all stuck in Laos he said I've I've an idea he said let's pull into a motel here (laughs) and you can write my life story (laughs) and I thought oh good god and it, it really took an amount of persuading because this guy, you know, the poor fellow, he, he he was, he had been in, you know, in combat. He really wasn't well. And it took, you know, all my strength to, con- to convince him to bring me to um, JFK. But I, all these little experiences that I had, uh, oh, there, there are plenty more, <laughs> but they, they, they I, I guess that they fed into my, you know, what could go wrong, what might go wrong. And I kind of, you know, tapped into that when I was writing, when I write, you know, uh, psychological thrillers. And I, I think, well, you know, what could go wrong, what might go wrong. And I, I, I feed off that kind of, that anxiety, I guess. So you you've obviously had a suitable amount of close shaves to to help you with that. Well, 
I, I yeah, I've had a, a few close shaves, and um, yeah, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm. I think that's probably why I like writing about this kind of thing because it's well, it's it's very safe from the comfort of an armchair to be an armchair detective, <laughs> and not have to actually go out and you know, uh, you know, be that person in real life. So um, yes, I have had a few few close shaves all right interesting very interesting now let's go away from that just for a moment because you did mention uh, a connection with the west coast of scotland mm. places yeah. like uh Glenetif. ah there you go so i knew i was going to say badly <laughs> these are <laughs> an environment that basically stayed from your glamping and camping days and road trips yes do you also draw on these places siobhan I I do because a lot of at the moment, um, what I'm writing is, uh, I uh, there's a lot of landscape in 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 what I do in in my settings, mm-hmm. and the the landscape of the west coast of Scotland is, is it's like um Kerry and like Connemara, but on a larger scale. Mm-hmm. It, it's just the scale of it is just so huge. I suppose in the same way as people say about Canada is like Scotland on a grander scale. It's it, it's all to do with scale. Um the west coast of Scotland, you know, Glencoe is 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 uh is, is really beautiful. Uh Glenetive. I remember being in that Glen one May and being on this uh boat and the whole hillside just being full of uh rhododendron and being on this really deep loch and just nothing but mountains round about. I mean, it, it, it's just very inspirational kind of uh, place. And then you have all the islands, um, you know, Mull, Arran, I've been on Skye. They should never have put a bridge to Skye. You know, it's lost an awful lot of the romance putting a bridge to Skye for me. Um, but yeah, I do. I, I did in the very first novel uh, that uh, I wrote, which uh, is still in a drawer and I may revisit. I did put in scenes from uh, the Scottish landscape, but it, it is it, it is inspirational because these these places can be uh, very, very remote. In, in Ireland, um, you know, you can travel around uh, Connemara, Kerry, Donegal, and there are houses a lot of the time within sight. There are bungalows here and there and there are villages here and there. A lot of the parts of the west coast of Scotland, you can be traveling for quite a while and not see any habitation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's just nice to be out there listening to the birds, listening to the wind, looking at the snow and uh, just it being you and the elements. Now, when I say me and the elements and uh, I'm very much a glamper rather than a camper. Okay. Um, yes. Yeah. Yes. Um <laughs> I remember being in a tent once in a place called Shieldeg, which is up the west coast, and hearing this thundering of feet and looking out this tent. And it was just a, a flock of sheep aiming for the uh, tent. And we just had to get out of that tent fairly quickly and make ourselves scarce. So, yeah, that, 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 was, um, that was a pretty scary experience. <laughs> Yeah, I, I I totally get you on the on the glamping, yes. the glamping side of things. Yes. Fair weather, fair yes, weather, definitely, definitely. So going back to your first published novel, Twisted River, which was published in uh, two thousand and sixteen, the Crime Review said it was an excellent debut novel with an intense and intimate narrative, very hard to put down. What inspired the story, Siobhan? 
Um, well, I think at the time, like 2016, I, th I think back, a lot of my friends were doing house swaps. And uh, they were saying, oh, you know, it's it, it's wonderful. You can swap with people in Spain and in France. And it's a wonderful uh, and easy way uh, to, I suppose, bed down into somebody else's uh, culture into somebody else's town and uh, do you know do it in a in a way that might be economical as well mm -hmm. and I did kind of explore all those ideas and then see as I said to you earlier I thought well look at all the things that can go wrong <laughs> <laughs> and um, I thought well look if I if if I was going to uh, do a house swap you know where would I like to do a house swap to and um, I thought of the various places and I think that, uh, oh, maybe the year before that, uh, we'd gone on a family holiday to New York. Um, we were on the, in Manhattan on the upper, uh, west side. So I thought, well, when I was writing the book, my, my, I'd have one family on the upper west side and then my other family who was doing the house swap with them would be in a lovely part of Limerick, um, down by the Curragara Falls, which, um, is there by King John's Castle, and there's just a beautiful stretch of uh, walkway and old Limerick. And I thought, well, you know, I'd have two families there, and they they, they would um, swap into one another's lives as well as into the bricks and mortar of one another's homes. And uh, yes, it was the it ends up being the um, house swap from hell because these people bring bring even though they're crossing the Atlantic, they bring their problems and the problems that are pursuing them with them. So uh, that was really part of the part of the inspiration for, for Twisted River. Okay, fantastic. And um, the, the same publication, the Crime Review, said about your second published novel, The Blue Pool is an intense read that you will want to devour as quickly as possible. Now, that was your first book, wasn't it, to feature parts of County Clare? Um, can you talk about the yes. landscape a little bit there, Siobhan? Yes, well, it it, um, it features Galway and it features uh, the Burren. Um, and the Burren is a, well, it, it's, it's like a lunar landscape in spots. It's very, very unusual. And it lends itself hugely to a, a, a work of psychological fiction or a, a thriller because you have... Um, uh, the mist can roll in very quickly from the Atlantic. And then depending on how much rain they've had, you get um, these uh, lakes called turlocks, which mm -hmm. appear. And these turlocks uh, appear or disappear depending on the uh, level of the, the water table. So in winter, they, they just, the, these lakes appear out of nowhere because they, they're pushed up from the ground underneath. And then as the weather improves over the summer, they just disappear. And because the, 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 the landscape is, is limestone and karst, you have a lot of grikes and gullies. Mm -hmm. And there's um, a lot of people who go caving in, in the burren. Now, I have to say, I, I just really don't understand <laughs> how anybody would willingly put themselves into a narrow tunnel with an oxygen tank and just want to crawl through narrow tunnels to see, you know, underground caves. Yeah. And just, yeah, I, 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 I find, that, you know, that notion is just so claustrophobic. Mm -hmm. And in, there, cavers do feature 
in uh, part in my novel, The Blue Pool, because it's a novel about four students who uh, go to a holiday cabin in the Burren. They're waiting exam results. And on their way home, uh, one of them uh, goes missing. And 25 years later, somebody pitches up in a guard station saying that he knows what happened to this girl. And then it, you row back to find out how it affects the three friends that had been with this girl that had gone missing. And Cavers do feature in part in, in the story because they had been around, the girls had met these Cavers in a pub mm-hmm. um, when one of the girls had, had, around the time one of the girls had disappeared. So it's it's very much a landscape that would lend itself to uh, mystery and uh, a thriller. Definitely. It's a fabulous, a fabulous part of the world. And um, your third novel, Guilty, that was released in June 2020, that's also set in County Clare. Um, yes. I love that book so much that I, I could actually easily read that again. It strikes me as a great candidate also for a film, Siobhan. Um, oh, that's great. If you know anybody in the film industry. <laughs> let, let, let that one settle. I don't have ama- amazing contacts, but you never know now that the seed yes. is planted. But um, yeah, exactly. the Irish, Irish Times Review described it as meticulous and unsettling, a terrifyingly dark, twisty thriller, skillfully plotted and stylishly written. Talk to us about your process of inspiration and the development of the plot and the characters and the role of place in all of this, Siobhan. Well, I think the sometimes the plot comes to you first and then sometimes the, the setting comes to you. And I remember the setting coming to me. I was out on um, one of the lakes in Clare. Uh, Clare is a huge... Uh, t- hugely diverse mm-hmm. county in that I was talking there a, a moment ago about the burn and then you also have uh, the, the, the seaside and the cliffs and that but then there's a kind of a, a, a more genteel uh, part of Clare in terms of it, it, it might be less dramatic um, and that's East Clare where there are a lot of lakes and I had been up around a lake in East Clare and I had thought, gosh, you know, this, the, you've got rolling uh, green hills. You've got the the uh, the lock as far as the eye uh, can see. Uh, I could see uh, wind turbines. And I thought this would just be a, a great setting for, you know, uh, a plot that had come to me. So I have two, I guess, in terms of, of development of, of the plot, I sometimes you come across something in, in the media or you hear a story or you read something and you think how how on earth could somebody do something like that mm-hmm. um and live and live with it and that is what I I tried to do in in guilty it, it's kind of a, a bit like um, I don't know if you've ever seen the the play Equus I remember seeing the play Equus and the Dundee rep many years ago mm. I thought it was a very unsettling play. And I, I read afterwards about uh, Peter Schaefer's uh, uh, how and why he wrote that. And he said he, he'd been in a car um, one weekend and he'd heard uh, this terrible story uh, nearby where he, he was driving of, of this horse that had been maimed, this horse that had been blinded. And he, he couldn't, he could not get his head around it. And he he, he tried to figure out a way, a, a, a way of understanding how that might have come about. And this the story at the centre of Guilty is something uh, that 
uh, I had heard. And I thought, well, how how could somebody do something like this? How could they live with it? Of course. Yeah. And I thought, well, you know, I will. Tr- it was as much an exploration for myself to try and come up with a set of circumstances where what had happened and how people dealt with it was not acceptable, but that in some way you could you could understand what they might have done. So my, my cast of characters is um, this um, uh, cardio surgeon, uh, Luke Ford, and his wife, who is uh, hugely uh, influential and popular in her own local area. And she's just gone into uh, local politics. And um, she's very much influenced by her father herself and her father um, are from this uh, old shooting lodge called Crow Hall on the lake. And um, yes, uh, both of them would, um, they're, they're intriguing characters in that I, I there's so many of, the, well, there are people that you can identify in Irish public life that would be similar mm. to um, these characters in that they're, they're small local politicians and um, who would be adept enough at um, speaking out of both sides of their mouths. <laughs> and, um, as Luke says of his, uh, of his wife, she has more faces than the town hall clock. <laughs> and, um, so I just, the, the cast of characters came to me because um, you, you have this, this guy who's, who's very focused on his work. He's, he's, um, and, and he's married to this woman who's, who, whose focus really is, is on other things. And then this child that they have uh, between them, who's kind of caught between um, the two agendas that are going on. So, um, as I say, yeah, that the setting came to me one day when I was out uh, just sitting on a wall, looking at this particular vista, thinking, you know, I could have a very old shooting lodge and then uh, I could have a very modern building Mm. uh, which I do have in in, in Guilty. You have this this architect-designed house known locally as the glass house and the story takes place between the glass house and uh, this old shooting lodge crow hall so i don't know if i've answered your question you totally <laughs> have no you totally have and i actually love i love the i love the contrast uh, of the two you know the two types of architecture and i love the yes. fact that you called it the glass house as exactly what would happen in ireland it would be nicknamed yes. isn't it like that yes yes <laughs> yes so definitely your your next novel uh, the bride collector that's available for pre-order um before release on the 29th of july 2021 and that that particular one is set in the fictional town of now let's see can I get it correct Kilbegan in Kylebegan Kylebegan there you go Kylebegan Kyle as in um, uh, the anglicised version of Quill which is for trees yeah Kylebegan okay yeah. perfect in yeah. County Kerry so yeah talk talk to us a bit about the the fictitious location and the book itself please yes and um, well hopefully you know with it hopefully it is going to be the the end of July that's the latest uh that I've heard and I've just uh started the process of doing uh, copy edits with uh, the publisher but um as i say uh it should uh, go ahead on those dates but i mean with with covid you just don't know what sure. what will change yes. but um yes it this is um a story I mean, if I was to uh, give you a one line and the the elevator pitch for it, it is the story of a taxi driver called a female taxi driver called Ellie Gillespie, who becomes uh, caught up in the hunt for a serial killer in a town in Kerry. So uh, this this town, Kyle Began, is a, a tourist town and 
I mean, there are so many tours. As I say, it's a fictitious town. It is not any one. It is not based on any one town in Kerry. But I mean, I think anybody who's been on holiday in Kerry will have been to some places like, you know, uh, Derrynan, uh, Kenmare, uh, Killarney, uh, all these places that, you know, you would associate with uh, tourism being the the main industry. So this town, tourism is the main industry. And two uh, women have pitched up dead, laid out in their wedding gowns in their beds at home. And we are introduced then to this lady, Ali Gillespie, who has found herself in, let's say, very much uh, straightened circumstances or reduced circumstances and is new to the business of taxi driving. And she one night is collecting uh, three women from a hen party mm-hmm. in Calbegan, in the centre of Calbegan. They've just come out of a pub. And she discovers, she brings them, she brings the bride to be home. And she discovers the next day when she's out working, she hears a report on the radio that says that a woman has been found dead at an address. And this is the same address that she dropped the bride to be off at mm. the night before. <laughs> so it goes from there. Okay. And she, I just, I, I thought, you know, there are so many fantastic Irish writers, Irish crime writers out there uh, at the moment and uh, who, who do the police procedural very well. And I thought, I would like to tell a story from the viewpoint of something, uh, from somebody who isn't uh, a detective, somebody who isn't uh, a guard or a um, policewoman. This person is a drives a taxi, and I mean taxi drivers. If you think about it, they get to see and hear an awful lot more uh, than, than you would think. Mm. I mean, uh, especially when people are, you know. <laughs> Before COVID, when people were able to go to the pub, go to a restaurant, <laughs> yeah, had of a few drinks. Yes. It, it, it's rather, it's a little bit like people who go, you know, to to the hairdresser. For some reason, people tell the hairdresser absolutely everything about them. Mm. And sometimes in a taxi, people will divulge all kinds of everything to a taxi driver because this person is anonymous to them. They think they'll never see them again. Mm. Uh, they think they'll keep their secrets. So I just thought that, you know, uh, exploring the idea of a taxi driver and a female taxi driver was uh, was quite interesting. Yeah, no, it's, a br- it's an absolutely brilliant idea. I love it. I'm I'm very much looking forward to my my copy of the of the Bride Collector when it's available. One one thing that's come up once or twice uh, yeah. in our chat today, Siobhan, you've mentioned Connemara um, and you didn't actually focus on Connemara so much when, when we prepared for the interview. Is it important to you, Connemara? It is. And in a way, I suppose there's something, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of the concept of racial memory. Mm-hmm. Um, I think sometimes you're connected to places without knowing that you're connected yeah. to them. And um, my uh, my mother, as I said, was English, but her uh, some of her forebears uh, came from Joyce country. Mm-hmm. Her her mother was a Joyce and uh, who had come from Connemara to, to live in the north of England. And she, uh, my mother was an only uh, child. And I guess I need to, to, to look back more at our genealogy if I can find out a little bit more. But when we would go and stay in my uncle at a house in Uttarard and the uh, summers that we would go up there on our holidays, we we would uh, go out to uh, 
oh, I think it was a place called Finney. It was up beyond Mam Cross, mm-hmm. uh, Joyce Country, basically. And uh, we would go to meet her, her, her cousin. Now, I, I was thinking back about this. I was trying to think, well, I, the, the, they didn't have running water. They didn't have electricity. So they certainly didn't have a telephone. I don't know how these people knew we were coming. <laughs> A party of eight people would descend on them, but we we would have to we'd have to we would park up at the side of the road, and we'd walk over a couple of fields. We'd walk over a stream, and we'd walk to this uh, whitewashed cottage. It was at the side of a, um, uh, the slopes of a mountain. Uh, my mum's cousin's husband he 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 actually um, he was a shepherd, and uh, we, we would go out there and. The, the, you know, you'd have the afternoon uh, around a, a big old uh, turf fire, and um, oh, it was kind of magical. It was like you know, uh, going back in time, very much. And I mean, I, I do remember in in college we would go for weekends out to uh, Connemara. I guess that's one of the great things about going uh, to college in somewhere like Galway. You've got such easy access to Spiddle and uh, the islands. I mean, a group of us went out uh, one weekend to an island called Mwinish. We'd we'd a fantastic uh, weekend out there. Again, it, it really felt very much divorced from the rest of the country because I suppose just because of geography and how long it actually took you to get there. And uh, there weren't that many amenities out there. And uh, yeah, yeah, I just, I do feel a connection to to places. I suppose then when you find out that you actually have family from the area, you think you do feel that you've got a, more of a connection and it, it, it's more meaningful to you. Hmm. Okay. No, I was picking up on that and Connemara is the place of my sort of childhood holidays. So I also ah. have a huge connection. That's why I was really more inclined, I suppose, to pick up on it. And there's another place, yes. Siobhan, that we have in common, which is Crete. Uh, I, oh, yes. I spent some time there also working for a season. Um, did, did you draw on it, you know, for your creativity and do you find it to be inspirational in that sense or is it just a different type of relationship that you have with Crete? Well, I, I think, um, you know, what's, what's, what's lovely about Crete and what's lovely about Greece in general is that it's almost like a concept in that it's when I, the first time I went there, we went to a place called Alunda. Oh. Now it's full of uh, five-star hotels now, but when I went there, it was very much off uh, the beaten track. It was the last stop on the uh, bus. I actually went on, um, we went on a, a package holiday and we, we were delighted to be the last stop at the end um, of the line because it was so remote mm-hmm. and we weren't far from uh, boat trips to uh, Spinalonga, uh, which is one of the last leper colonies left in uh, Europe. And we did end up going on a trip out there. And, and since then, um, a book has been written about it. Victoria Hislop uh, wrote a book called The Island. But it, I mean, it, was, it was really quite spooky to think that, you know, you'd only ever heard about leprosy in, in Bible stories. Mm-hmm. or um, But to think that people actually had bits of their limbs, you know, wasting away and they were sent out to these, I think as late as the, maybe the 1950s, 1960s. That was, you know, one part, I guess a, a more kind of a gruesome, grim part of that holiday in uh, Elunda. But what's what I remember about it is it's just very... Um, 
it's it's just very simple. It's the food is the, the food is simple and nice. The drink is simple and nice. Um, the, the the landscape, everything is slower. Uh, you know, even the second time uh, I went back, I went back to Hania in recent uh, times, and you know that's a beautiful town with the. I guess it's kind of Roman buildings around the port. Stunning, yeah. But, there, Stunning. but it's just everything is slower and people take their time. And it's just kind of like that uh, the, there's a simplicity. And I remember, oh, years ago, uh, we used to, uh, I suppose I was maybe, actually, it's not that long ago, reading a book in, uh, not a book, um, it was something in Time magazine or Newsweek magazine. And I thought, you know, that is, that's Greece. It was a story about Greece. It was a story about a man who lived in New York and he had quite a stressful life. And he, um, he became ill mm-hmm. and he went to the doctors and they, he was told he had cancer and he only had a certain amount of time to live. So he thought he would go back to one of the Greek islands, uh, the Greek island that he was from, uh, and just enjoy whatever time he had back there. So he, he went back to this Greek island and he went back to his family cottage and he uh, got up when he wanted. He stayed up. He had a few drinks with his friends and played dominoes and played whatever he wanted with them uh, late at night. He started growing a few vegetables. He started swimming in the sea and he just his life became much more simple, mm. much more stress free. And he actually his cancer somehow disappeared and he went back to the doctors in New York years later at the doctors that had diagnosed him. And I mean, he did have cancer at that time. Mm-hmm. And to tell them, you know, what had happened. And the doctors had since died. Oh, my God. But he was really? still alive. That's amazing. Yeah, it was, it was one of those. Uh, it was in Time magazine or it was in Newsweek magazine. And I just thought, yeah, you know, that that's what's that's what I think of when I think of Greece. It's just just being in touch with the th- simple things and you know life slowing down and it's it's just so again stunningly beautiful hmm. um and alunda i mean the hills all around alunda the sea uh, the white sand and the food the food is just so beautiful yeah <laughs> yeah i know i i i would also feel the same connection and i think Siobhan, it's almost like a medicine within itself meaning not a medicine, chemicals. Uh, it's just almost like a medicine to connect with life as we were intended to connect connect with it really originally, don't you think? Yes, yes. Um, and, you know, I, I'm thinking back to, let's say, was it last, this time last year, I can't believe a year has gone by, but when we initially uh, in Ireland all went into lockdown, we've now almost become a nation of bird watchers because Everybody's talking about the birds now. And it was the first time back in uh, March last year when there was no traffic because no, everybody was at home. You could hear all the birds and even the robins seemed to become more tame and all the birds seemed to become more tame. And you, it, it just paired back everything to things that were a lot, a lot more simple. And, you know, I guess that was one uh, one of the few benefits of, sure. of lockdown. Yeah, of course, yeah. of course. And uh, just going back to all the environments that we've had a chat about, uh, not every single one, but the concept of environment, both formative and as you went through, you know, other decades of your of your life. 
Do you feel that you kind of carry those with you, Siobhan, and draw on them sometimes creatively? Oh, yes. Um, certainly for uh, for thinking about landscape settings and um, where, where if you're... If you're setting a scene or you're you're setting a house in a particular um, environment or a town in a particular environment, you you go back to places that you've been because they you take little bit. You, you, I guess you might have a little collage in your mind's eye if you're designing a village that you're going to have a story set in. Mm-hmm. You might pick a street. Or you might pick a locale from one of the places that you've been. And it'll just be a hodgepodge of a lot of places that you've been. And it'll be an amalgam of all those places. So, I mean, they definitely do feed into your, um, definitely do feed into your creativity. Hmm. Okay, great answer. And I have to ask you about your imagination. How would you describe it, Siobhan? Well, there were t- there are times when I think, you know, I'd like to switch it off. Um, yeah, I do. Um, I mean, I can see a scene or I can see something. And it's funny when you're with, uh, when you're with other people who don't think like you, I guess, you know, as you grow older, you realize that everybody thinks differently uh, about things and people can see the same thing and, 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 and picture different stories in their head. But I... You certainly when I'm 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 writing, and the last few months I've been extremely busy editing something. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, editing the the bride collector, and I feel that I've been going around talking to these these fictitious characters have become real in my head, and I've been having all these conversations with them, and I'm uh, I feel that I'm a third party watching some of them have conversations and where they are, and uh, you know I'm thinking oh well no they wouldn't actually say that they would say this, so you do kind of go into this. Um, fictitious world it, it, it actually becomes quite real um and it can be uh, it can be difficult to sleep it's very hard sometimes when an idea comes into your head and you think oh god you know i could weave this in or i could weave that in or how about a scene doing this or a scene doing that and your imagination will run away with you and i do have to try and uh, and tune off early enough in the evening because otherwise my brain is just going 10 to the dozen and I'm awake all night then trying to think about things and, and figure things out and um and then you're just you're just exhausted the next day <laughs> well, why can't I do this all during the daylight hours why do you know all these these thoughts that come to you at night time and you think oh god that's that's brilliant I'll write that down and then Sometimes when you do that and you look at it and you think, hmm, well, actually, maybe I thought it was brilliant at three o'clock this morning, but it really isn't that brilliant at all. <laughs> yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. I mean, I think I think maybe it's partially because there's less distractions at night time. You know, we're not dealing with maybe other family yes. members or, you know, TVs, radios, yes. et cetera, computers, whatever. Um, great answer, though. <laughs> um, yeah. So, listen, moving moving on to you know, the place that has focused most uh, in your novels to date. Um, and imagining the days that we're all looking forward to, you know, all the time, obviously, when, when we're all able to travel safely again. Um, yes. So we're in County Clare. I know it's two two different parts of County Clare. But if I, was, yes. if I was to come over, Siobhan, to visit that area when it's safe to travel, where would where would you recommend for me to stay? 
Well, if you um, if you wanted to do the burn and you wanted to do some of the walks around the burn, there is a lovely place called the Wild Atlantic Lodge. And I think it was one of the last places that I stayed uh, for a night away before all of this happened. Mm-hmm. And it's in Ballyvaughan. And, you know... Oftentimes, when you before you'd go away, you might have a look on TripAdvisor, and people would say, "Oh, the uh, the landlord or the landlady or the staff are are very friendly, very welcoming." And I used to always think, oh, "Why are people bothered about that? I'm not really bothered about that." And I didn't think I was until uh, I don't know. Maybe it's a, a factor of getting older, but it does actually make a difference. You can stay you can stay in places that are really you know, beautiful decor, beautiful views. But if the staff aren't warm and friendly, it does leave um, it does leave a bit of a an unpleasant taste. Whereas um, if you go and stay somewhere where you have all those things, plus the staff are all really uh, friendly and welcoming, which, you know, we had that experience in the Wild Atlantic Lodge, I would recommend um, that as a place to stay in Ballyvaughan. And you've got you know, the burn on your doorstep. And there's a couple of, I mean, the, there's a looped walk there called the Lagavulla uh, Walk. Mm-hmm. I, always, I always remember it because there's there, there's an, a Scottish whiskey called, I think it's called Lagavulin. And I always think, I, <laughs> I think of it that way, not that I'm a whiskey drinker. But um, so that, if you were staying in the burn, that's where I would recommend. Um, alternatively, if you want to go out in loop head direction, which I've spent many, many summers out in Loop Head when my kids were small. We used to spend them all out around there. Um, I would, There aren't any hotels uh, really, or there might be a few B&Bs, but I'd recommend um, hiring a house. Mm-hmm. Uh, and just, uh, Loop Head, is, Loop Head is, is pretty much undiscovered. And maybe I shouldn't be talking about it on this podcast because, <laughs> you know, some people, uh, uh, you know, who have houses out there, it's like, don't tell anybody about this place and don't tell anybody about this walk and don't tell anybody about this site. You know, we want to keep it all to ourselves. Um, but Lupet is really quite spectacular. Um, and uh, I would recommend getting a, a self-catering cottage or something mm-hmm. like that out there. Okay, that sounds great. Now, what sites uh, in either or both parts of Clare come to mind as sort of, you know, I must go and see them? Well, okay, but I mean, uh, I, I did mention Lupet. There's, if you're coming out um, from uh, Kilkee, there's a, a walk or a drive or a cycle, depending on which way you want to tackle it, uh, called the Dunlicky Drive. Mm-hmm. Now, people talk uh, uh, a lot on on the board Falch and the Falch Ireland brochures and the Dream Ireland brochures and all the, the you know, the uh, tourist literature about um, the Ring of Kerry and the spectacular drives. But the Dunlicky Drive is like that, a, a microcosm of that, really. It's uh, this, the, the view... And I only discovered it in the in the I guess the last ten years. I had no idea that this uh, drive had existed. It's it's just spectacular. Um, you're looking out onto cliffs, out onto the sea, um, out onto all these coves, out onto shale. It's it it is a spectacular drive. Mm-hmm. So if you've come out as far uh, as the end of the Dunlicky Drive, and then you come out onto Loop Head, um, you could go as far as the Bridges of Ross which is, again, it's fantastic coastal scenery and uh, a lot of fish, uh, people who fish go fishing there. And you could continue on out then out to the lighthouse. And there's a, oh, there's a, there's a lovely viewing point there. 
um, beyond the lighthouse. Again, it's a, a kind of a, a secret viewing point where you go down through a gully mm-hmm. and you're on a, a like a ledge and all you can see is a cross to Kerry and you can look out and you can spot the dolphins and sometimes there are whales there. Oh, wow. Um, it's, that's, that's, that's a, a brilliant uh, spot to be. All around the uh, Loophead Lighthouse actually is, is quite spectacular and there's lots of walking out there. And then you come back in uh, the loop um, and you go towards uh, Kilcredon Lighthouse. Um, okay, it's a brilliant cycle because it's actually mainly flat mm-hmm. until you go towards the lighthouse and then you come back in towards um, Carrigaholt, which is a lovely little uh, village. And there's um, there's a few nice eateries and pubs there. And uh, it, there's a, a, a beach and depending on what way the winter has been, there'll either be stones on the beach or there'll be lovely sand on the beach. Okay. <laughs> That sounds uh, like, like that sounds really spectacular. The the area you described, it really does. And in that area around there, are there any sort of unusual or eccentric places or experience that you would recommend? Um. Well, there is now. You know, uh, when you go end up going uh, on holiday, the same place for a number of years. Certain places. Uh, have a certain mythology mm-hmm. about them. And you wonder if they're actually real. Now, there are two places in Eclair that uh, neither of which I've been to, but friends of mine have been to, and they insist to me that they are real. There's somewhere out around the, uh, oh, out around the, light. it's not as far as uh the, the lighthouse. It, it's beyond a town called Kilbaha, which is the last town before the lighthouse. There is a quarry. Um, well, yeah, it's a quarry um, where a local family dynamited into the rock and there's it fills up with seawater to make their own sea pool. Now, I... Um, you have to go across a lot of fields to get to it, but apparently that's pretty spectacular. And there is then my novel, The Blue Pool. While I set it in the Burren in uh, County Clare, there is a place called The Blue Pool um, somewhere close between Kilkey and uh, Doonbeg, where, again, a lot of fishermen go. Now, apparently it's quite dangerous. So, Again, I'm so you know I I don't put myself willingly in danger. I'm quite happy to hear about these places, but um, I believe that it's you know unusual and quite spectacular. And uh, the colour of the water there is 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 um, that's why it's called the Blue Pool. And I just uh, thought I'm going to call a novel one day. I'm going to call it the Blue Pool. Okay, that's that sounds like an, another fantastic spot to put on to put on the list. Obviously, for when it's yes. possible, and. If I was to be cheeky enough to ask you to bring me out to a restaurant, what would be your top restaurant in that area? Well, I'd have to uh, bring you somewhere where there's a a really good view. Mm -hmm. And um, a restaurant, it's it's a kind of a cafe. It's, it's, oh, it's a cafe come restaurant. um, And it is one of the best views of a waterside setting that I've been in in the country. And that is the Diamond Rocks in uh, Kilkee which is a cafe uh, built on top of rocks overlooking three natural swimming po- pools called the Pollocoles. Wow. And uh, they, they fill up with uh, seawater. And at low tide, you can uh, swim in 
there's pollicle number one, two and three. And I had the misfortune one summer of being out at the third one, which is the furthest one out. And you have to be careful of the tide because if uh, you're not careful, you can get cut off, which I very nearly did. And I had visions of the uh, marine rescue, rescuing myself and my sister. Oh. Um, <laughs> thinking, oh, I'll die of mortification. I'm just going to die of mortification being witched up here. Um, but this particular uh, restaurant overlooks all of that. And um, you've got the, the waves crashing in over those rocks and across the bay then. You've got George's head and there's an outside seating area, uh, which was open last summer because of COVID. It was only open out. I think it was only open. Actually, there were parts that were open uh, at various occasions inside, but it has a spectacular view. And I would, yeah, I would definitely take you there. Okay. That sounds like a plan, Siobhan. It sounds absolutely yes. fantastic. And uh, either before or after uh, the bite to eat in, in that gorgeous location, would there be a bar that you would want to go to? Well, I'd have to bring you back to uh, Carmody's Bar in Carrigold, um, which is, oh, it's, um, I guess I like it because it reminds me of the kind of bars that we would have gone into in Galway, mm -hmm. old fashioned when I was a student in Galway. It's um, there's a kind of a, a snug area at the front and stools and it's so long since I've, well, Oh, it's a couple of years since I've been in it now with, with COVID and that. Um, and it's um, different. It's got a, an area at the back and uh, over bank holiday weekends and that they'll have uh, traditional musicians in. And it's just a very warm, uh, friendly bar to be in. And you can sit out front when the weather is nice and just look out over the uh, bay at Carrigaholt and that that's where I would bring you. Okay. That sounds very much my cup of tea, a bit of kyol and crack in a good, exactly. in a good setting, obviously. Now, last but obviously certainly not least, Siobhan, you mentioned that you're doing edits, uh, you have been doing edits on The Bride Collector. Are you working yes. purely on that or are you working on anything else at the moment? I handed... Uh, up the oh my structural edits to my publisher last week so that was just it was just such a relief to have that over and done with because my head was buried in that for months and months and um, but always you're always thinking you've got an eye to the next thing so I have a couple of ideas for two novels really uh, one came to me it, it was the plot that came to me first and uh, if I proceed with that, it will be half set, I think, in Dublin and half set in uh, probably Connemara. And the second idea that I had, it came to me almost as a scene and I could picture this particular scene. And it takes place in a it's a it's a, a hollow a hollow in sand dunes near, in a, near an estuary setting and. I just worked back from that as to what happened here and why did that happen? And the cast of characters is growing in my head. And I'm just, I'm just imagining what might have happened and why it happened. And so that, again, that I can see it in my head. I can see where this is. I, somewhere down around Kerry or, or, or West Cork, um, I think. Mm. Yeah. Okay. Yes. So you're, you're at the stage where you're seeing which, plot and characters win over the other yes. one? 
Well, and uh, and I also have titles. I always, I always think it's it's a good idea to have a title um, first off because it, it it kind of anchors you and grounds you. Back in the days when I was doing Twisted River, I I wanted to call the book um, Curragower Falls, mm-hmm. which is where half the book is set. But um, the feeling was at the time, well, you know, because it, my I had an American publisher, Viking Penguin. Um, for the paperback edition, uh, I think the feeling was that you know it would, might be too difficult to pronounce. But I, I mean, I I, I still think you know Curragower Falls is a nice name. Anyhow, Twisted River um, uh, did well, and uh, I, uh, but yeah, it's nice to have a a title in your head. So I've got two titles for um, for each of these ideas that I'm I'm working on. Okay, and are you? at a stage where you would feel comfortable to share them or is it far too early for you to do that? Oh, I, I think it's, yeah, yeah, it, it's, <laughs> it's, 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 it's far too early uh, for me uh, to think about that. But, you know, you can, it'll take a while for it all to grow arms and legs and uh, to snowball into something that I can, you know, I, I find that I'm very good at, you know, first chapters and first pages and titles and a few characters, but um, you have to add on all the other bits as well before you before you sit down and start on that and I, I I feel as well that I would like a break I mean I'm I want to do a bit of reading because when I'm I'm writing I'm I tend not to do so much reading because I'm always afraid that I will pick up other people's you know mm-hmm. stylistic little ticks and I, I I want to just I have plenty ticks of my own <laughs> I'd like to just you know work with um so I, I, yeah, I'm. I want to catch up on. I am catching up on some of my reading now. My my Christmas books. I'm, uh, I'm heading into my Christmas books now. Okay, that sounds that sounds like a good a good plan in terms of uh, yes. you know how, how intensive everything has been in your working yes in your working schedule. Siobhan, I've really enjoyed, and I was so looking forward to today. Also, I've really enjoyed our chat. Um, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. And it's, uh, yes, I hope I, I didn't ramble on too much. No, um, no. It's been lovely talking to you, Jackie. <laughs> Not at all. So just for uh, for those those people who are listening to us, just to look out for Siobhan McDonald's new book, hopefully at the very end of July, on the 29th of July. Yes. Uh, but of course, if it's not, it's delayed. We know because of well, I've no, I've no. Again, you see, this is me just being cautious. I, I, I'm always loath to just, you know, just dive in there and say, but it is. I mean, that that is the date that I've been given. But I've just seen what has happened to other people in publishing along the last number of months, and sometimes dates do change. But I think this is this is ninety nine percent the twenty ninth of July. Perfect. Thank you so much, Siobhan. We hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Creative Places and Faces. We look forward to bringing you more creative insights into places around the world very soon.